On December 8, 1976, the production crew of the television show The Six Million Dollar Man was filming scenes for the Carnival of Spies episode in Long Beach, California at The Pike. During the shoot, a prop man approached what appeared to be a wax mannequin that was hanging from a gallows. He grabbed the form by its arms and one of them snapped off. And to the prop man's horror, bone and desiccated tissue protruded from the arm. Hey y'all, and welcome back to Southern Fried Spooky, the podcast home of all things Southern, spooky, and this week, embalmed. Embalmed. <laughs> this is your Carolina girl, Heather. And this is your Florida man, Tony. And as always, we invite you to join our Facebook page and feel free to comment. We're also on Instagram. We have a Patreon. Really, Indeed. check it out. We promise it exists. Right. Leave us a few stars on your podcast platform of choice. Mm. So, many years ago, yeah. my mother managed this sunglass store, and I was, like, in middle school, and I ended up there by myself. I guess it was cheap babysitting, <laughs> sometimes with whomever was working there, and one of the employees was a college student, which at the time seemed so far away and amazing, but she was taking a class on death and dying. Now you work at a college. I work at a college, and I'm much older than the students. It's very sad. <laughs> but even back then, I thought that class sounded amazing. Right. And she first told me about today's story. Well, the good death. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of new. And in later years, you know, after the internet became a thing, mm-hmm. I stumbled upon this fabulous tale again. Apparently it was in one of her textbooks. Yeah. And um, it's kind of starting to amaze me how many times we cover a story of this nature. It's yeah. kind of its own category. What y'all doing with your bodies, yo? <laughs> People who live their lives and then have a whole new existence as a sideshow mummy. Ugh, wow. Ghouls and boys, today we visit Elmer McCurdy. Wow. Sadly, he's not Southern. He's a New Englander who moved out West. But it's just too good a story to miss out on. Hey, he's Southern by proxy. He moved. To the West. Yeah. We're Southern. That's always a thing for us. Yeah. Okay, first off, what's with that name? Elmer McCready. McCurdy. McCurdy. Yeah. Even worse. Who names their child Elmer? <laughs> Don't name your kid Bryden. <laughs> Don't name your kid Bryden. <laughs> but who was this unfortunately dubbed gentleman? Not Bryden. <laughs> Elmer J. McCurdy was an American bank and train robber who was killed in a shootout with police after robbing a train in Oklahoma in October 1911. Okay, so can we just, I don't, can you do the air quotes in train robber and bank robber? Well, you're going to hear it here. Dubbed the bandit who wouldn't give up. <laughs> his mummy, or well, his mummified body, was first put on a display at an Oklahoma funeral home and then became a fixture on the traveling carnival and sideshow circuit. So we'll start at the beginning. <laughs> And apparently a $6 million rand, but yeah. Yes! McCurdy was born in Washington, Maine, which I didn't know was a place, but, you know, there's I guess there's a Washington everywhere. Yep. On January 1st, New Year's Day, 
1880. He was the son, I mean, he started out a bit unfortunately. He was the son of 17-year-old unwed Sadie McCurdy. The identity of McCurdy's father is unknown, even to her. Though one possibility is Sadie's cousin, Charles Smith. Wow. Sadie's brother George and his wife Helen adopted Elmer. I oh, guess I'm to... so glad there was a comma in that sentence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to save Sadie from the shame of raising this child. But Elmer was unaware that this was the arrangement. Yeah. He had that whole Jack Nicholson experience. After George died of tuberculosis in 1890, Sadie and Helen moved with Elmer to Bangor, Maine. And if you're from Maine, I'm sure that's probably not how you say that. Bangor? Bangor, Banger, I don't know. Have you never seen anything that Stephen King has written or, like, produced? I read it! I don't... Yeah, I, I've not heard it. <laughs> Sadie eventually, for whatever reason, revealed to her son that she was his mother and that his father was unknown or not worth mentioning or embarrassing. I don't know. Or both. Or All of the above. Yeah. Or there were too many choices. Who yeah. knows? Well, this news so disturbed young McCurdy, he grew resentful. He became, quote, unruly and rebellious. You know, like kids do. He started to drink heavily, a habit he never really discarded. McCurdy eventually returned to his birth home to live with his grandfather. He became an apprentice, a plumber. He was a competent worker, and he lived pretty well. However... During the economic downturn in 1898, McCurdy and countless others lost their jobs. And to follow that hardship, in August 1900, his mother, I don't know if they mean Helen or Sadie, mm. died of a ruptured ulcer. Oof. That sounds horrible. Yeah. And his grandfather died of Bright's disease the following month. Well, first off, ruptured ulcers means you just bleed into your stomach until you die. That's lovely. Bright's disease. Oh, okay. You'll have to look that one up. That's brutal. Okay. It sounds cheerful somehow. Yeah. <laughs> Shortly after this series of losses, McCurdy left Maine and began drifting around the eastern United States. I wonder if he got very far down. Mm. Where he worked as a lead miner and a plumber. He was really into lead, I guess. He was unable to hold a job for any length of time because, well, alcoholism. In 1907, McCurdy joined the U.S. Army and was assigned to Fort Leavenworth. Gomer Pyle? <laughs> I guess. McCurdy was a machine gun operator and was trained to use nitroglycerin for demolition purposes, which was a skill he retained for later life. He was honorably discharged from the Quartermaster Corps on November 7th, 1910. Well, at least he got an honorable discharge. Yeah, so his life was looking up for a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. A little bit. McCurdy then made his way to St. Joseph, Kansas, where he met with an army friend. On November 19th, McCurdy and his friend were arrested for possessing burglary paraphernalia. Okay, what is that? Is that like... Can you imagine getting pulled over at that point or being arrested and they find, like, black pants, a white striped shirt, a beanie <laughs> cap with a black mask, and a big bag that has a money sign on it? Uh, yeah, well, in this case, they had chisels, hacksaws, funnels for nitroglycerin, gunpowder, and money sacks. Oh, okay. I don't know if it actually had the symbol on it. Yeah. 
The St. Joseph Gazette reported that during their arraignment, McCurdy and his friend told the judge the tools were not intended for burglary, but were tools they needed to work on a machine gun that they were inventing. In January 1911, a jury found McCurdy not guilty. And after his release... By reason of stupidity? (laughs) After his release from county jail, McCurdy's short-lived career as a bank and train robber began. Okay, air quotes. Yeah. McCurdy was an entirely inept robber. For example, McCurdy decided to incorporate his training with nitroglycerin into his robberies. He wasn't very good at correctly calculating the proper amount to use. And nitroglycerin, I mean, it's unstable at best. Yeah. On March 24th, 1911, he and three other men decided to rob the Iron Mountain Missouri Pacific Train number 104. McCurdy had heard that one of the cars contained a safe with $4,000. Okay, 1911, that's probably still quite a lot of money. He and his accomplices successfully stopped the train. They found the safe. McCurdy then put Nitro on the safe's door to open it, but being McCurdy, well, it opened. The blast completely annihilated the safe. And (laughs) the majority of the money. McCurdy and his partners managed to steal $450 in silver coins, which had melted and fused to the safe's frame. (laughs) Wow. Which is probably a little hard to fit in your little money sacks. On September 24th... Oh, by the way, that's like $130,000. Oh, wow. $4,000 about $130,000. So making off with four fifty dollars is probably disappointing, especially when it's a big chunk. Oh, yeah. (laughs) With, With a safe attached to it. It's like a hundred and thirty-five, three sixty-five, something like that. It, it's it's a hefty chunk of change. Okay. On September twenty-first. Now it, it never does say what they do with their literal chunk of change. Yeah. On September twenty-first, nineteen eleven, McCurdy and two other men don't know if they're the same or different. They attempted to rob the Citizens Bank in Chautauqua, Kansas. Chautauqua. I'm sorry for the people who live there. No, I think you had it right the first time. I've heard of Tahlequah, but that's Oklahoma. Yeah. First, they spent two hours breaking through the bank wall with a hammer. Like, okay, one would think that would draw some attention. You might think. And then, McCurdy placed a nitroglycerin charge around the door of the bank's outer vault. The blast blew the vault door through the bank interior and completely just, it plowed everything inside. But the safe was still there. McCurdy then tried to blow the safe door open, but in a twist, the charge failed to ignite at all. So the lookout man now got nervous and ran off. So McCurdy and his accomplices stole about $150 in coins that were in a tray outside the safe. Wow. And later that night, the men hopped a train which took them to Kansas. Well, the Kansas border. They split up and McCurdy made his way to the ranch of a friend, Charlie Rivard, near Bartlesville, Oklahoma. Hmm. He stayed in a hay shed, <laughs> living luxury, yeah. on the property for the next few weeks and celebrated his mediocrity by dousing himself in alcohol. <laughs> McCurdy's final robbery, I guess this is what, number four? Yeah. That we know of, that, that's been mentioned here at least. It took place on October 4th, 1911. So... About a month. Well, yeah. not even a month later. It's more yeah, like two weeks later. Like, it was like two and a half weeks later. Near Okesa, Okesa, Oklahoma? I'm not sure. McCurdy and two other accomplices, he always likes two, 
plan to rob a Katie train, which apparently is the short form of Kansas, Kansas to Texas. Kansas, Kansas, Texas. After hearing that it contained $400,000 in cash, and that was a payment to the Osage Nation. That is a lot of money now. However, this is Elmer and his band of merry men. They stopped a passenger train instead. They were able to steal $46 from the mail clerk, two demijohns of whiskey, a revolver, a coat, and the train conductor's watch. By the way, that would be $13 million now. And imagine making off with only $46. Yeah. And assorted odds and ends. A newspaper account of the robbery later called it one of the smallest in the history of train robbery. (laughs) I mean, damned by faint praise, right? Right? (laughs) McCurdy was disappointed by the less than stellar haul. He returned to Rivard's ranch on October 6th. Disappointed? I didn't actually see how he um, felt about it, but I can only imagine that disappointment was in there. It's like $13 million, the equivalent of like $200. So you're just like, huh, that's a thing. Let's go home. I think he was out of whiskey at that point. Yeah. Well, um, no, he returned to Rivard's ranch with his two demijohns of whiskey and drank those. By this time, McCurdy was ill with tuberculosis from working in the mines. He also had a mild case of pneumonia, and trichinosis. Oof. Good Mc- lord, man. <laughs> McCurdy stayed up drinking with some of the ranch hands before going to sleep in the hayloft the following morning. Unbeknownst to McCurdy... But announced to us... Indeed. He had been implicated in the robbery. How infamous. Oh, God, our $46 are never safe. And Imagine a, the sheriff. <laughs> a $2,000 reward for his capture was issued. Yeah, it's like... They, okay. He's probably more property damage it's than anything. It's one of those things of, are we getting him for a robbery, or are we just getting him for being stupid? He's kind of a menace of some sort, no matter what. It's just like, well, we gotta go after McCurdy. Are you sure? Might as well. Maybe I mean, it was a that, slow bank was gonna, that bank was gonna put in a small door anyway. I mean, he kind of <laughs> did us a favor. Architectural rearrangements. <laughs> <laughs> He's here to renovate. <laughs> Not exactly. Okay, so we're going to arrest you, but first, we need a door over there. <laughs> we don't really have a plan, just over there. Yeah. <laughs> That's his specialty. In the early morning hours of October 7th, a posse of three <laughs> sheriffs. Sheriff and a couple of his drinking buddies went after him. Well, actually, <laughs> it kind of was. It's two brothers and a friend, oh, Bob shit. and Stringer Fenton and Dick Wallace. Wow. They tracked McCurdy to the hay shed using bloodhounds who were probably also uninspired. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, woof, right here. <laughs> probably wasn't hard to fight. Him. You woke us up for this, woof, there. <laughs> they surrounded the hay shed and waited for daylight for what purpose i don't know in an interview featured in the october 11th or no in the october 8th 1911 edition of the daily examiner sheriff bob fenton recalled it began just about seven o'clock we were standing around waiting for him to come out when the first shot was fired at me it missed me and he then turned his attention to my brother stringer fenton he shot three times at stringer and when my brother got under cover He turned his attention to Dick Wallace. He kept shooting at all of us for about an hour. We fired back every time we could. We do not know who killed him. On the trail, 
we found one of the jugs of whiskey, which was taken from the train. It was about empty. He was pretty drunk when he rode up to the ranch last night. McCurdy was killed by a single gunshot wound to the chest while laying down. He was 31. Wow. Okay, and now, while that was all very interesting and comedic, now it gets even more weird. Uh-oh. <laughs> you know, post-mortem shenanigans. Yes. <laughs> I swear to God, we're going to have to put that on a bumper sticker or something. You really should. Post-mortem shenanigans. <laughs> And you can find pictures of this all over. He is very easy to find. McCurdy's body was taken to the Undertaker. Evidently, because he's not good at hiding either. (laughs) In Pahuska, Oklahoma. I do not know all of these interesting native names. Where, naturally, it went unclaimed. At this point, most of his family, if not all of it, was dead. Joseph L. Johnson. If you were related to him, would you want to, like, actually acknowledge that you were related to him? That is also a theory, but... Uh, to be kind, most of his family was dead. Yeah. <laughs> Joseph L. Johnson, the owner and undertaker, embalmed the body with an arsenic-based preservative typically used in embalming in that era, era mm-hmm. blah, to preserve a body for a long period of time when no kin were known. That is a really long sentence. Who yeah, wrote that? You did. Damn it. He then shaved the face, dressed the body in a suit, and stored it in the back of the funeral home. Johnson refused to bury... I guess they just did that back then. All right, McCurdy, stand here. Somebody will get you soon. (laughs) He refused to bury or release the body until he was paid for his services. I guess arsenic's expensive? I don't know. As no money was forthcoming, Johnson then decided to put McCurdy to work and exhibit him to make money. He had to pay off the debt himself. Wow. He put the corpse back in street clothes, placed a rifle in the hands, and stood it up in the corner of the funeral house. For a nickel, Johnson allowed visitors to see the bandit who wouldn't give up. Um, at various other times, McCurdy was also called the mystery man of many aliases. I'm not sure he had any. Somebody once told me the world is gonna roll. Sorry. The Oklahoma outlaw... And the embalmed bandit, which might explain a lot about his adventures. The bandit became a popular attraction at the funeral home and drew attention of carnival promoters. Um, I should note that funeral homes having unclaimed bodies on display wasn't really that shocking. It was done kind of a lot. Yeah, and also back then they would display them out front before they had the funeral processions. That is also true, but probably not for, you know an undetermined amount of time. Yeah. Like, they would just stand them up. Like, wing the coffin back just, just a little bit. Yeah, and curiosity. And just stand them. And I know, like, when they were... Especially they... for, like, people who died in gunfights and stuff. Oh, yeah. Then it was just kind of a an exhibit, yeah. really. On October 6, 1916, a man contacted Joseph Johnson claiming to be Elmer McCurdy's long-lost brother from California. A Mr. Aver had already contacted the Osage County, Oklahoma sheriff and a local attorney to get permission to take custody of the body and ship it to San Francisco for a proper burial. The following day, Aver arrived at the Johnson Funeral Home with another man calling himself Wayne, who also claimed to be McCurdy's brother. How convenient. Somewhat reluctantly, Johnson released the body to the men who then put it on a train, ostensibly to San Francisco. It was instead shipped to Arkansas City, Kansas. Not Arkansas. No. The men who claim... Sort of like Kansas City, Missouri. Absolutely. The men who claimed to be McCurdy's long-lost brothers were, in fact, 
James and Charles Patterson. I was kind of hoping for P.T. Barnum, but you know what? Yeah, there we go. (laughs) He's not that famous yet. James Patterson was the owner of The Great Patterson Carnival Show. Not that. Yeah, that James Patterson. Not the one who writes all the books nowadays. That would be really different. Yes. And it would make him very old. Yes. The two concocted a scheme to take possession of the body in order to feature it in their show because, well, Johnson didn't want to sell him. So, yes, McCurdy was taken away from the funeral home by two men who pulled one over on Mr. Johnson. (laughs) McCurdy's corpse would be featured in Patterson's traveling carnival as the outlaw who would never be captured alive. Which does put quite an interesting spin on it. I don't think that's how it really went. Until 1922. At that time, the Pattersons sold their operation to Louis Sonny. Louis Sonny used McCurdy's corpse in his traveling museum of crime, which featured wax replicas of famous outlaws such as Bill Doolin and Jesse Jesse James. Jesse James, nice. In 1928, the corpse was part of the official sideshow that accompanied the Trans-American Foot Race. Hmm. I don't know. In 1933, he's getting older. Mm -hmm. It was acquired for a time by director Dwayne Esper to promote his exploitation film, Narcotic. The corpse was placed in the lobby of theaters. Narcotic or necrotic? I don't... Anyway, go ahead. As a dead dope fiend, whom Esper claimed had killed himself while surrounded by police after he had robbed a drugstore to support his habit. Mm. By now, McCurdy's body had become mummified. The skin had become hard and shriveled, causing the body to kind of shrink. Yeah. Esper claimed that the skin's deterioration was proof of the supposed dope fiend's drug abuse. Sorry, I was just getting into the spirit of things. After Louis Sony died in 1949, the corpse was placed... Not Stoney's. The corpse (laughs) was placed in a storage in a Los Angeles warehouse. Mm Mm-hmm. I hope they had AZ. Right. In 1964, Sony's son, Dan, lent the corpse to filmmaker David F. Friedman. It eventually made a brief appearance in Friedman's 1967 film, She Freak. Wow. Yeah. In 1968. This is some Ed Wood level (laughs) stuff going on Well, it's definitely B-movies, we'll say. Dan Sony sold the body along with other other wax figures for $10,000 to Spoonie Singh, the owner of the Hollywood Wax Museum. Singh had bought the figures for two Canadian men who exhibited them at a show at Mount Rushmore. While being exhibited there, the corpse sustained damage from a windstorm. The tips of the ears, along with fingers and toes, were blown right off. Wow. The men eventually returned the corpse back to Singh, who decided that it looked a little... Too gruesome. You know, eventually the skin's just going to turn into paper, right? Or leather. He was considered not lifelike enough to exhibit. A small wonder. Singh then sold it to Ed Leersch, part owner of The Pike, an amusement zone in Long Beach, California. By 1976, McCurdy's corpse was hanging in the Laugh in the Dark Funhouse exhibition. L-A-F-F. I should just point that out. You know, I'm kind of starting to feel bad for this guy. Right? I mean, you weren't before? Oh, I mean, yeah, but wow. He, he's reached a different level of pathetic yeah. now. On December 8th, 1976, the production crew of the television show The Six Million Dollar Man was filming scenes for the Carnival of Spies episode. Yes, you've already heard this part. Yeah. And during the shoot, a prop man moved what he thought was a wax mannequin that was hanging from the gallows, but the arm broke off and it was 
a human bone. Yeah, well, depends on where it broke off. You would. I don't know. I was about to say you'd see the humerus, radius, ulna. Those like, do cover the legs yeah. of bones in an arm. <laughs> I think that'd be a little freaky though, especially if you're thinking he's just plastic or yeah. you know, so naturally. And I don't know, as a prop guy, he's either going to be really freaked out or he's going to be like, oops. Can you imagine that? You're just like, hmm. <laughs> Uh-oh. Bob? <laughs> Bob? We got we got an issue. <laughs> I'm going to set this down. Please take it off my hands. Ew. <laughs> Police were notified and the mummified corpse was taken to the Los Angeles coroner's office. If you think about it, I guess that's the second time he's been to a coroner. Yeah. On December 9th, Dr. Joseph Choi conducted an autopsy, I would imagine there's not much left, and determined that the body was that of a human male who died of a gunshot wound to the chest, which we already knew. The body was completely petrified, covered in wax, and had been covered with layers of phosphorus paint, probably from the funhouse. At this point, he weighed approximately 50 pounds and was 63 inches in height. Some hair was still visible on the sides and back of the head, while the ears, toes, and fingers were missing. Like, all the dainty bits. Yeah. The examination also revealed incisions from his original autopsy. Would you even bother calling it an incision at that point? And embalming. Tests conducted on the tissue showed that the presence of arsenic, which was a component of embalming fluid until the late 1920s. I was about to say, this is 50 years later. Oh, yeah. They found the tuberculosis... They found the bullet. Well, okay, they didn't find the bullet, but they found um, the bullet jacket. Yeah. It helped them pinpoint the era in which this man had been killed. Further clues to the man's identity were found when the mandible was removed for dental analysis. Here? Oh, you know. I know what it is. I'm just envisioning it. Inside his mouth was a a 1924 penny and ticket stubs to the (laughs) 140 West Pike Sideshow and Louis... Louis Sony's Museum of Crime. Yes, they stuck him in his mouth. Wow. Investigators contacted Dan Sony, who confirmed that the body was Elmer McCurdy. I guess he had known all along. Forensic anthropologist Dr. Clyde Snow was then called in to help make a positive identification. Dr. Snow, mm-hmm. when he wasn't in the Hunger Games, took radiographs of the skull and placed them over a photo of McCurdy taken at the time of his death in a process called superimposition. I hate to impose upon you, but I shall do it in a super way. Indeed. Snow was able to confirm that the skull was that of Elmer McCurdy. Good lord. Yes. So, by December 11th, the story of McCurdy's journey had been featured in newspapers and on television and radio. Several funeral homes had called the coroner's office offering to bury McCurdy free of charge. But officials decided to wait and see if any living relatives would wait to claim the body. Like, they didn't decades ago. Why were they now? Yeah. Fred Olds, who represented the Indian Territory Posse of Oklahoma Westerns, eventually convinced Dr. Thomas Noguchi, then the... Definitely a Japanese last name. One would imagine the chief medical examiner coroner for the county of Los Angeles to allow him to bury the body in Oklahoma. After a little more testing to ensure proper identification, Olds was allowed to take custody of the body. On April 22nd, 1977, a funeral procession 
procession, not possession, was conducted to transport McCurdy, or what was left of him, to the Boot Hill section wow, Boot Hill. Okay. of the Summit View Cemetery in Guthrie, Oklahoma. Wow, okay. A grave... He is buried in Boot Hill. Yep. Wow. Something of an honor, I guess. Yeah. That's, graves... like, that's, like, that's where you bury cowboys. Oh, yeah. Um, or at least outlaws. Well, <laughs> he was infamous at this point. Yeah. A graveside service attended by approximately 300 people wow. was conducted, after which McCurdy was buried next to another outlaw, Bill Doolin. Wow. The real one this time, not the wax one. To ensure that McCurdy's body would not be stolen or have any other adventures, two feet of concrete was poured over the casket. He was a colossal failure as an outlaw. However, Elmer McCurdy proved that it's never too late to achieve success. Or something inspirational like that. Post-mortem success? Absolutely. Wow. Well, this is another half hour or so of your life stolen away by some inept train robbers. We'd okay. Lo- we'd love to see evidence of some of your comments on our Facebook page. Indeed. Just look for Southern Fried Spooky. And be sure to leave us explosively good five-star reviews if you're so inclined. Boom! <laughs> Join us next week for whatever weirdness we get up to then. In the meantime, I'm your Carolina girl, Heather. And I'm your Florida man, Tony. Very confused. (laughs) And we are Southern Southern Fried Fried Spooky. Until next week. Bye, Bye, y'all. Wow. I I, I went into this thinking, you know what? As as a villain, he failed. And that's where it should have ended. And there was going to be a couple of laughs. But man, I feel bad for him. (laughs) It's sort of like you feel bad for him and then you feel bad for him. Yeah. <laughs>